10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hi there, and welcome to my debut show. It's me, Brent Poland, and I'm going to be your host today in the Lunchtime Show. We've got a, a good special show coming up for you. We've got Kevin Courtney from the NEU, the General Joint General Secretary, and he's going to be talking to us about the upcoming ballot for industrial action in the teaching unions. Uh, later on, that will be about 1.30, hopefully, we'll be speaking to Kevin, and then I'll be a chance to speak to you guys. This that. is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hi there and welcome to my debut at Teachers Talk Radio. Uh, I've been looking forward to doing this for a while and yes, it's a big shout out to Tom Rogers who has uh, coaxed me into doing this. And if you feel like you're capable of doing this as well, then uh, hopefully you'll be able to have a go at it too. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're So, um... What I'd like to say, guys, is welcome and thank you to our sponsors and thank you to Tom who got me into this and hopefully this is going to be a great show. If you feel like you're capable of doing something like this, you've got a lot to say, then you can come and also join us on the Teacher Talk Radio team. So today I've got a really good show coming up. I want to talk about industrial action, which is a pretty controversial thing for us teachers because it's not something that we do lightly. Um, we, we've seen a lot of individuals going on industrial action, you know, a diverse group from your railway workers right through to your posties and also we've had uh, individuals like physiotherapists yeah physiotherapists uh, lawyers and and it seems that we are heading for a bit of a winter of disconnect but i'll be speaking to kevin courtney the joint check general secretary of the neu union at roughly about 1 30 and i've got 30 minutes of his time he is currently um, on media watch today because as we know some of you have probably got your envelopes from the union to say are you going to go on strike so I thought this is a perfect time to have that conversation and to put some difficult questions to Kevin about the future of our profession, because this is quite serious. You know, it's not something that we do lightly as a profession in taking industrial action. So first of all, I want to lay out a little bit about the background to this potential industrial action. Then I'll have a recess for the news and then we'll come to Kevin and then hopefully we'll have plenty of time left at the end to get you guys involved, because I really want to get a bit of debate going on this, because I know there's, as I as a bunch of individuals, we teachers are quite diverse. And in the part, my staff room is indicative of staff rooms around the country. Not everybody would agree with Kevin in teachers going on strike. So it's kind of up to him as well today to kind of convince us and convince the teaching body that it is something that we as a body should all be behind. Because 
it's like everything else. If everybody's going to do it, then it's got more impact. And it's interesting watching the mood music coming out from the other unions, not just the NEU, but the NASUWT, Pat Roach from there, uh, ASCL and, and the head teachers unions. It, there seems to be a definite direction of travel moving towards industrial action. And in my time as a teacher, I've been a, an educator now for 19 years, a um, bit of a one um, Stephen Gerrard or Jamie Carragher, to use the football analogy, a one teaching school man, basically. I've never left the school I've taught in. And, and as a result, I've had a really good career thus far. And that's it. I love my profession. Um, I've loved having a teaching career. But I, too, am also quite worried about the direction of travel for the profession. And, and as a result of that, I've seen a lot of my colleagues in the last couple of years, I suppose morale is low and I've seen them leave the profession. And these are people that probably shouldn't be leaving the profession. So I'm also interested in opening this discussion out into not just industrial action, but the current context of what it is like in our schools, the current context which leads to potential strike action, because it's not just about pay, it's about conditions, it's about respect, it's about the profession. It's about, you know, what we are doing as a country when it comes to education. As Rishi Sunak the other day turned around and said, if he had one silver bullet that he could have, and that silver bullet to solve a lot of our problems, that would be education. But we've been here before where we've had politicians talk about education, 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 quite famously. But we don't see it on the ground. We, we, you know, we saw during the COVID crisis how schools were supposed to be so important. We are, you know, we were, you know, get back into school. We need you. Schools are amazing. Teachers, you're doing such a great job. We need the children in school. And we were, in intensive terms, guilted back into schools. And, and not that we need to be, because as educators, we put our children's needs first. We always do. We're altruistic. That's who we are. That's who we've always been. But it's been pretty hard to go through this traumatic experience of a couple of years of the COVID crisis to come out the other side and then what? Have potential budget cuts because that's what we've seen the coming out of Jeremy Hunt's recent statement that we're going to have to tighten our belt. And when you look at the last 12 years of working in education, because I've had that history of working in education for the last 18 years, but the last you know, 10, 11, 12 years, they have been difficult years because we had austerity and we had academization and we've had lots of changes. And that's the thing with education. There just seems to be constant change after change after change. And that does make me quite concerned about the future of the profession I love. And I'm not alone in that. So I'll be asking Kevin some difficult questions. And as much as I am a person who is a union supporter, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I have to as, as a host. And I will be doing that role of asking the questions that potentially some of your right wing shock jocks might ask. Because that's the questions we have to ask ourselves as well, because we need to be mindful of the of the reputation of our profession. And if we are as a profession to step over the line and to to do industrial action, then we, we better make sure that we have the rationale, the support of the general public, the hearts and minds of the people, and that it's done in a way that brings the support to bear with us, not against us. And as an historian, 
I'm always fascinated because I, I teach history, I teach geography, I'm, I'm teaching some physics on Tuesday, which is another another example of, of, of cutbacks and other things going on. And, and, I'm, and I'm also teaching some literacy. And this is a, my new role in school is pretty much like a, the Teddy Sheringham role. Put me off the sub bench and I'll score a goal for you. You know, it's it's kind of like, if you've got a job to do, you know, call on me, sure, I, I'll, I'll say yes, because I'm the guy that says yes all the time, because that's who we are as teachers, we say yes. And we give and we give and we give. But have we given too much? Have we not been looked after enough? Because we are the people that looks after the children. But who looks after us? Who's been caring for us? I have to say that, you know, that the positivity around my profession is, is waning slightly. And, and I'm going to say it. I love my colleagues. I love my school. I love my profession. But it is pretty hard sometimes to stay positive when you're not getting the love from your employer, and I mean that my employer ultimately is, is Her Majesty's government. And when my employer has not been putting my health and safety first, they've not been putting my needs first, and, and how can you ask me to look after other people? And, and the most precious thing that other people have is their children. You're asking me to look after children when I'm not looked after, looked after myself. And that's the difficult thing within teaching. We, we, we are just people that go above and beyond. And we're not alone in that. We saw that during COVID. Our nurses, our, our social services. I'm married, I'm married to a, a, a health professional. And the two of us sometimes compare notes on what's going on in the health professional world and what's going on in the education world. I've got friends who are police officers. I've got friends who are in the fire service. And that does seem to be an issue with respect for the public services. And it seems to be easier to criticize than to praise. So before I go to the news, what I'm gonna to say to all of you who are listening, I think you're wonderful, I think you're fantastic, I think a profession is worth fighting for, and you do a good job. And you know, as my father always said to me, look, at the end of the day, son, all I can ask you is to do your best. And if your best is good enough, then that's good enough for me. And there are a lot of us out there working hard in the teaching profession that sometimes thanklessly never get a thank you. And not that we asked for it, but it would just be nice to get it. So I thought I'd start my opening uh, monologue with a little bit of a praise for you, my teaching colleagues. And I don't just mean that teachers, I mean educators. I mean the, the support staff and anybody involved in education. It has been a tumultuous couple of years and you stepped up. You stepped up, you stepped in, and you did your best. And coming out of this now, I suppose what I want to discuss with Kevin is, what are the next steps? Because it's not just about, it shouldn't just be about strike action. It's an interesting thing on Kevin's Twitter feed the other day, and I'll be putting this question to him. And he, he put it up, I think 10,000 people responded to it. And it was, what would the priority be if you could have an increased budget in school? an increased wage for yourself to, to fully fund your, your teacher wage or to abolish or reform Ofsted. What was interesting on Kevin's own Twitter feed was that 67%, just over two thirds, wanted better budgeting for schools. And I think, you know, that's what, that's what you know, 10,000 people responded to. And yes, there was 20 odd percent of people said, yes, we want, you know, our, our, our wages to be increased. And I suppose I have to agree with that to a certain extent, because I believe that for me, the last time that teachers went on strike in 2016, it was about the budget cuts. 
And I remember doing um, phone-ins to, to, to national radio stations when people were like, why is teachers going on strikes? And they're like, well, we're going on strike to fight for the children, to fight on the children's behalf, to stand up for education. And there was a campaign just before the last general election to stand up for education. I'd be interesting to ask Kevin, you know, what if he had the choice, what would he choose? If he was given that choice, that Hobson's choice of fund teachers' wages or fund schools better, that would be, that's a difficult one, isn't it? That's a very difficult one to do. And, and, and my heart would be telling me that it's what we would want to do is look after the children and put ourselves first because the average teacher spends, what, four, five hundred pounds a year in their own classroom. You know, we we buy DVDs. We, you know, there's so many of my colleagues that go out and buy glue sticks. Oh, my word. Glue, glue sticks. What is it with glue sticks? Seriously, that, that's a show in itself. I want to do a show. That's it. That's my next show is going to be glue sticks. Why is there a shortage of glue sticks? Why do children destroy glue sticks? Why do we need more of them? I mean, because let's be honest with you, it is one of the bins of our life. It's a little teacher thing, like the photocopier being jammed and somebody leaving the photocopier and not cleaning it out. Who those people are? There is a special place in hell for those people that jam a photocopier, walk away and do not fix it or don't even notify somebody to fix it. And then you come in, you break, you've got two minutes to photocopy, 30thinglastminute.com and the photocopier doesn't work. Oh, we've all got our pet hits but we don't have enough resources. And as a result, I mean, teachers bring in their own resources. We work hard and we, we create resources. We spend a clean fortune, some of us, in looking after our children. And we did that during COVID. I know some of my colleagues personally went round with food parcels for some people. And we know that that is, again, a separate show about the free school meals debacle and how, again, we stepped in. And I know from my own personal experience that we had... Um, ladies in our school, the canteen ladies, they came in and they created their own food parcels to be sent out. And then the teachers came in and they distributed them around the local community. I, I saw exactly what a school is capable of doing during COVID when I saw people, ordinary people stepping up and they weren't necessarily, they weren't necessarily the teaching staff. They were the caretakers, the midday supervisors. They were all of those people involved in education. So to all of those people involved in education, I say thank you and keep doing what you're doing. Let's get the positivity back in our profession. So I'll go to the news now. And then after that, hopefully we'll be able to have a chat with Kevin. He'll be with us at about 1.30. Listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Saturday the 29th of October saw a so-called March of the Mummies, according to an ITV News report. Hundreds of people campaigning for improvements in childcare and working conditions for parents took part in marches in Manchester and 11 other cities. 
The march was organised by campaign group Pregnant Then Screwed, who say that the UK has some of the world's most expensive childcare. The group believes that children in the UK are being born into poverty because parental leave is not well paid enough and a lack of flexible working conditions is forcing parents out of the workforce. A spokesperson for the campaign group said research suggests that employers are desperately trying to find highly skilled people to work, whilst hundreds of thousands of women who desperately want to work can't. In response, a government spokesperson said the government is committed to supporting working parents and helping them participate and progress in their working life. The UK has one of the most generous maternity leave entitlements in the world. They went on to highlight the recent consultation on making the right to request flexible working a day one right for all. More than £7.5 million has been announced for the extension of mental health programmes for schools in Northern Ireland. Education Minister Michelle McIlveen announced funding continuation for the Engage 3 and Healthy Happy Minds projects. Ms McIlveen said that the feedback from school leaders and staff was that both programmes had been invaluable in helping to support pupils across all educational settings. Both schemes were created to help alleviate the impact of the pandemic on children and young people. Durham University students have queued on the streets overnight to secure a home for next year, according to a report from the BBC. Lists were released and hundreds lined up outside of estate agents in the city with one student saying some showed up at his current accommodation for a viewing in a panic for next year. The university said it had anticipated pressure on the private rental market and increases in rent and was giving the issue urgent attention. Durham Students' Union described the city's housing market as broken and claimed that increasing student numbers were putting both welfare and education at risk. First-year undergraduates in the city have guaranteed accommodation, but have to find their own housing after that. The university is encouraging students to contact their college if they are facing difficulties. TES magazine features a story from Scotland as a teaching watchdog raises child protection concerns with the government. The General Teaching Council for Scotland says its role protecting children is being adversely affected by police failing to share information. A judge ruled last year that critical evidence should be shared by police. But the GTC for Scotland says the change has been slow to take effect. New figures also show that the GTCS fitness to teach process has also been hit by the pandemic, with the average time taken to close a case increasing to 249 days during 2021-22, compared to 113 days the previous year. The GTCS is responsible for investigating and making decisions about Scottish teachers' fitness to teach and says it relies on agencies sharing information and making referrals. Police Scotland's Assistant Chief Constable responded by saying that child protection is a priority and no child will be put at risk of harm. The GTCS has recently come into criticism for its handling of child protection cases. The full article is available via TES magazine. Professor Alison Beverstock has been awarded with special recognition at the Soldiering On Awards 2022, held in London recently. Professor Beverstock is the founder and director of the charity Reading Force, which promotes shared reading within Forces families. The UK's 130,000 Forces children typically face ongoing challenges such as disrupted education, uncertainty and parental absences. The Reading Force project was designed to promote family connectivity through books, 
as well as raise higher education aspirations, engagement and transition. The Soldiering On Awards recognise the achievements of those serving in the armed forces as well as those who support them. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about buying a laptop, a question I get asked all the time. So this is what you need to know if you're considering buying a laptop for yourself or a loved one. First up, it's physical shopping versus online shopping. My only advice on this is consider how much you're saving online. If a device goes wrong and you bought it from a shop, you can take it back. Online support will usually require you having to post the device back, which can be a bit messy. Even if you buy online, it's always good to visit a shop and actually see the device. I use these few tests to help me decide on a laptop. First, what is it for? If it's for gaming, then you need to look if it will run the games you want to play. Or gaming machines will tell you how they perform with popular games. Pick your game and then it will just be a balancing act on how much you're willing to pay. More expensive usually equals better gameplay. Screen size is my next decision. If I'm going to be taking it places, then a smaller screen will make it easier to fit in a bag. If you're using it a lot, you might want a bigger screen. Next, I try the G test. This is incredibly technical. It involves pressing the G on the keyboard and seeing how much the keyboard flexes. This is a good indicator of build quality. More robust designs will flex less. Sometimes this is a factor I use to decide between two models that are equally powered. If you're a bit of a DIY computer geek, then see if you can upgrade the hard drive and the RAM, etc. Some top-end gaming machines have a cheaper model and bar a small amount of graphics speed, simply have more RAM and a bigger hard disk. Next up is the operating system and the life of the device. Pretty much every device will have a point in time where it's not supported anymore and will stop upgrading. It won't stop working but you'll no longer be able to keep up to date. Sometimes a device with a shorter upgrade life will look appealing because it's cheaper. However, in the long run, it won't last as long. Will a reconditioned computer suit you better? A second-hand or reconditioned machine will usually be considerably less. After all the other checks, have a look at the keyboard. The spacebar, if not replaced, will give a good indicator of the amount of use the machine has had. With new or old, feel how hot it gets. Some laptops run hotter than others. This could be uncomfortable if it's on your knee. Look where the power socket is. Will it be an obstruction in your favourite chair. If it's leaned on regularly, it can be broken. Finally, don't be dazzled by flashy lights and gimmicks. At first, you notice them. They'll soon be a part of the furniture. There's no such thing as a bad machine nowadays. There are lots of machines purchased, though, which are not fit for purpose. As always, feel free to send your thoughts to at TT Radio 2022. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So welcome back and it's me Brent Poland and you are listening to Teacher Talk Radio and today I will be talking to Kevin Courtney who's the Joint General Secretary of the NEU Union about industrial action. So a big shout out to, to listeners currently listening. I have a very special one listening in from a, a little place called Warren Point. That's in Ireland. That is my mother. Hello mother. I'm not getting you to ring in because the good people over here do not want to hear us have a discussion. Um, the lots of beeps will have to be put in there. Uh, we have HB History, we have Smiley James, we have lots of squiggly letters behind some names and usernames, which is, uh, we've got Spence listening in, uh, I think that's Adam, who's uh, also a tech whiz as well, I'm sure he enjoyed the two minute tech we just had. Um, but here's some of the context about what's happening in schools at the moment. So we've had, obviously, our latest new um, guru, our chief, what, what do you call it, education secretary of schools, Gillian Keegan. 
and that is the fifth in four months. It's um, it's been quite a, a time actually for education. We've had Nick Gibb come back in as a schools minister. He's a bit of a Marmite character. Some love him, some do not love him, but he's controversial. But at the same time, he knows his game. He has been in education for two pre previous stints, and for some people, they think that's a good return to at least somebody who's got some competency and some understanding of the needs of education. But the current situation is is this is that education funding has declined year on year. The current government promised that it wanted to return in their 2019, they wanted to return education to its 2010 funding and boom, then COVID happens. And as a result of COVID, everything went out the window because we were in survival mode. And as a result of that in survival mode, we, we saw that schools were having to, to do things they wouldn't normally have to do. Supply budgets have been exhausted. We've seen, for instance, uh, experienced teachers leave and not be replaced. We've seen a definite decrease in the number of teaching assistants in the classroom. And all of that means, and, and we're losing our teaching assistants because there isn't a, a kind of support um, staff national pay uh, situation and I know that a lot of support staff are definitely unionized and, and they are quite vocal now because their wages are some of the lowest wages in education and I think value for money they do provide a lot more bang for buck than you get um, because, because they do support a lot of the positivity in schools especially children with with the highest needs and dependency needs which again is a double whammy because during covid this is when we've seen more people needing more support and to summarize all that what that essence what that means is is that schools are kind of like a support network for the wider community they service they're integral to the needs of the wider community and as a result we've seen the wider community suffer of course during covid but every man and his dog keeps saying, oh, but, you know, schools could be warm banks. Yes, yes. You know, during these cold months, people could come in and get some warmth in schools. Really? Um, <laughs> really? Do they think that schools have that amount of money that we can afford to, to have people just waltz in and, and, and sit in our warm, cozy classrooms? I think there is a massive disconnect between the media and between some individuals who haven't set foot in a school since God knows when, and the actual reality of what has been going on in British schools in the last generation, because the statistics are quite damning. The, the, the difference between the wealthier schools and the poorer schools is, is leading to outcomes. And we saw that during COVID with the rogue algorithm. And in essence, the poorer areas are suffering more and they need more, but they get less funding. So you have like a, a, a scenario there where schools would be more generous and would want to help out more but they can't because they haven't got the resources and yet they're being tapped in more. And I'm talking about things like wraparound care. I'm talking about things about care around the child. And it seems every day now that we're being tasked with doing more, you know, we're, we're county lines. And there's going to be a great show coming up on that. Um, one of my, my, my colleagues is going to do a really good show on that. But we're seeing that we are needed a lot more to, to plug the gaps of society's problems. But we just don't simply have the resources. And then we as modern teachers are now surrogate parents. You know, we're social workers. We're, we're now trying to fight extremism. We're trying to educate children. We're trying to help children. We're trying to sort out their, the mental health problems that we're seeing with some of these children. And we just don't have the physical people able to do it. And, and that's, I suppose, the current situation in schools. And the backdrop of that is, is of course, that I've never seen so many conversations with people hitting a certain generation who are going, when can I retire? I've never had as many conversations with people of a certain age going, when's my pension available? And 
this is sad because we're going to see in many aspects the type of person who's given their life and career to teaching just being driven out because it's not just about the paying conditions they are just tired they're burnt out the burnout rate within our profession is extremely high and the government's proposal, of course, to to um, the the school's uh, regulatory board of, for for pay, an independent body, has recommended the starting salary for teachers starts at thirty thousand pounds. That's fantastic. Make it a more attractive profession to come into. But what would the point in be, you know, getting people into the teaching profession when you don't look at retention? And part of the problem with retention is it's just quite simply how schools are run these days. It's, it's You can have a school next to you that's run really well in a really good multi-academy trust and the school, you know, half a mile down the road is run completely different and, and people can't wait to get out. And I, I know schools that had a new head teacher come in and called the staff and, and laid down the lawn, 30-odd staff out of 70-odd left, and now they can't get teachers because we're not an exhaustible resource. We're highly trained specialist individuals with who offer sometimes the type of skill set that is very hard to train for. And, you, and if you lose these type of people, it's very hard to get them back. But it seems that the government emphasis seems to be on recruitment, but not on retention. And again, they made lots of promises. You know, promises were made during COVID that, you know, we would have a 15 billion pound catch up fund. Um, when the czar behind that, the COVID catch-up czar, said he needed £15 billion, he walked away because he was getting £1.4 billion. Um, and that, when you see the backdrop of the potential of austerity part two, that's what gives teachers like me sleepless nights. Because austerity part two is the opposite of what we need. We need the opposite of austerity because schools at the moment, where would we cut funding? Where would we cut? And looking at the types of things that would be cut as a result and the types of impacts that you have, this is a kind of, a, not an exhaustive list, but this is a list of the things which, which has a problem. Increased class sizes, staff shortage in key subjects, uh, curriculum provision and less choice for the children, extracurricular activities and enrichment clubs, uh, cultural capital trips, um, staff not being replaced, redundancies, forced retirements, TAs leaving to go work in Tesco's, no send provision, um, resources cut, your consumables, your books, your pens, your lack of, you know, glue, um, the quality of food in the halls. You know, the quality, Jimmy Oliver stuff, all the stuff he did, but the quality of food in the halls, you have to make cutbacks, less fresh fruit and vegetables, more of the cheaper food has to come in, compromising on that, compromising on health and safety when it comes to building repairs, compromising on health and safety when it comes to actually upgrading your schools. Um, you know, my classroom's got quite a few leaks. There's, there's lots of things I can see in, in, in schools. I've seen the state of some, some of my local schools and they need, they need updating. They really do need updating. And I think that's 15 billion pounds is needed for updating our schools, not to bring them into the 21st century, but, but update them to make them livable, workable places, not even to make them the type of schools that you'd be proud to show off, but just functional. And we're talking about um, outreach into the community, uh, attendance support, for instance, a careers provision. Um, and this, we saw this with, with during, during, again, during COVID, where we, we were asking for ventilation systems to be put in school because we were now realizing that air quality affects the performance of children. You know, be nice to have some ventilation systems in, in, in schools. And these are the things that have not been able to get anywhere close. Now, I've just seen that Kevin has is listening in. So I'd like if Kevin can call me and uh, he's got the app. So he's here. He's just about hopefully can get called in. Um, can you hear me, Kevin?
I've just sent an invite to Kevin, so hopefully he's in the room. I think I'm there. Hiya, Kevin. Hi. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm just so glad this works. You know when you have that teacher thing and you go, please let the technology work, please. Absolutely. <laughs> the tech letting you down. But here we are. We're online. That's great. Fantastic. So we're going live. Uh, I know we've only got you for half an hour, but, and, and obviously I'd, I'd like to make the most of that. And uh, normally I would I like to warm up, but you and I have spoken before uh, on a couple of occasions. So we'll go straight into a couple of the questions. So you're going to be a busy guy because um, we have, for the first time, I think in a generation, talked to the whole union in a, an indicative ballot. The indicative ballot showed a huge percentage, 86%, I think it was, that said yes, that they would vote for a strike if it became an official ballot. So my quite first question to you then is, why did you do the indicative ballot to get that? Or was that just merely just making sure that the, to get people motivated towards this ballot, because you've got to get to 50%. So why did you do the pre-ballot kind of online and then this one as a, as a kind of um, official ballot? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, you, you know that in this country, and uh, there are a whole set of restrictions on the way unions conduct uh, ballots that don't apply in other countries. So the formal legal ballot has to be entirely postal. We have to post the ballots out. You have to post them back. Now, one of the big difficulties that we have is getting people's postal addresses right. I mean, the union's got a good database and the, the, the addresses are correct on the database until somebody moves and doesn't tell us they've changed their home address. And why would you tell the union they changed changed home address? So there's there's always a delay on that. So doing the electronic preliminary ballot allowed us to engage with people through text, through email, and we'd also built an electronic system which allowed people to update their details, to update their postal address, and thousands of members did that. So partly we did it to alert people to what was coming, to alert reps to the sorts of work that they would need to do, to test the technology that we were going to use, and to get those updated uh, updated addresses. And like you said, the the yes vote for action was 86%, which is high. Uh, also, the turnout was was over 60%, 62%. And that's really important to us because the law requires that the turnout has to be at least 50%. So we've got 12% on that. We're, and that's going to be important because when we go to a postal ballot, generally there is a bit of drop off. Uh, because it's it's harder to find a post box than it is to click return on your text or email. So we wanted to check that we were in the right place. We are in the right place. We can beat these. We can beat the thresholds uh, in this ballot, and th th I think that's a really important uh, place for us to be. So you're confident then um, of getting over fifty percent, and you need forty percent, isn't it, of the fifty percent, or is it forty percent of the whole union? Because that's not com completely clear. So you need fifty percent yeah. of the union to respond, and you need forty percent of the fifty percent, or is it forty percent of the whole union? It's forty percent of the whole union. So these are the the restrictions that we talk about, the thresholds that the government sets, and the first one applies to every union that at least fifty percent of your members must take part in the ballot. 
but there is another one that only applies in what they call um, important public services. So they class education as an important public service when it comes to this. Uh, we wish they would when it came to funding education as well. <laughs> but for th there's a second threshold in those situations where 40% of all the members have to vote yes. So my simplistic way of seeing that is if you get a 50% turnout, and an 80% majority, then, then you've got 40% of all the members voting yes. So it's 50% and 80% is what you have to be. We, are, we were way above on both of those. So the turnout was 62%. So there's that 12% margin. And on the second threshold, we had 86% uh, of 62%, which comes to 53%, That's which is a lot more than 40%. So we've got that margin actually while not being overconfident at all and i think it is really difficult to reach these thresholds when we're talking about trying to get and talk with people in 23,000 different uh, schools colleges and nurseries um, while that's really difficult there is something that's different that helps us on this postal ballot compared with the electronic ballot and that's the fact that our sister unions nasuwt and NAHT are going to be balloting at the same time. And I think that will lift everyone's confidence. It will lift the awareness of what's going on. And that, that will help us. So I, while not wanting to be overconfident, there is a postal strike that we have to deal with. There are all of those issues. Isn't that quite ironic, isn't it, that you're... But is that one of the reasons, sorry, Kevin, is that one of the reasons why you're giving it such a, a long lead time? Because it is an urgent issue. I mean, some people haven't had their pay rise yet um, because obviously they're not, they haven't been backdated. And, and obviously that's that's a second question I'm going to ask you about academic trusts in a second. But is that why you're giving yourself a big lead time of 13th of January? Because it is an urgent issue. And I would have thought maybe possibly having this a little uh, closer, but is this to make sure that you get that opportunity to get, to get into 23,000 sort of uh, different places to get as many people as the yeah. possible. I mean, the reason for the 13th of January is the postal strike. Uh, we, uh, our original planning was not for that. It was to open more or less the same time we are now, and then to close sort of mid-November and to have the possibility of uh, a first day of industrial action before the end of the autumn term uh that would that's always very difficult you've got um nativity week you know you, there's so much going on at the end of term but we we wanted to have that possibility but when the cwu announced their strike dates we thought that the risk of not hitting the, the thresholds when there is that much postal disruption was too great so we've gone for that longer time scale leading to the 13th of January. And uh, as it turns out, our sister unions, NASUWT and NAHT have had the same thought. So we're all closing our ballots in more or less the same time. I think there's a weak difference between the, the first and the last of the closure dates, but all at more or less the same time, which would allow us to act together afterwards if we all achieve the thresholds, which I hope and think we will. 
And, and that I've noticed is, I'm not saying it's unusual, but I, mean, I work closely with, with, with other members and other, other unions. And I know that you do yourself looking through your social media. You, you are, you are, let's be honest, Kev, you, you are going to be the right wing press kind of dream in certain aspects. And that's another question I'll come on to in a second about how you're going to combat that. But I've now noticed that there is a definite sort of a, a joining you and Pat Roach are on the same page on this. And that is, I think, unusual to see unions um come as close together because we've always been a little bit it's not just jointed but even even seen ASCOL and the head teachers union they've been actually more vocal than i ever expected because i get a sense that they're also quite fed up and and they've been through what they've been through and, and on their members behalf but i have seen something my question to you is i've seen something that actually concerns some teachers and it goes back to about the, the government making it difficult for teachers to go on strike and it was the disclaimer on the ballot which was that you have to put this disclaimer on the ballot which says that there is a potential for you you know losing your job which had some i, I saw some twitter feed uh, last night where some individuals took a photograph and says well what, what's this doing on there and, and, and people were reassuring them saying no it's, it's it's a disclaimer but could you explain why that's on there and where that has come from. You know what I'm talking about? There's yeah, yeah, of... I do. And it's a legal requirement that that is put on these things. Actually, there is no realistic possibility of anyone being dismissed because of taking this action. There's a protection in law in this country. There are all the restrictions on trades unionism, but there's a protection in law that, that stops anybody taking any action against the striker for the first 12 weeks of industrial action. We'd hope to be settled on it before we reach the end of that. But I think the other thing to think through in, in this is who would... Um, you were talking earlier about the very great difficulty in attracting and retaining teachers. If we have all three unions that are balloting, passing these thresholds, that tells you there's a huge majority of the profession that thinks we should act on it. There'll be a, even more will think that we're in the right but don't want to act. But there'll be a huge majority who think that we should act on it. In that, in that prospect, you can't, this, People aren't going to be singled out and dismissed in those circumstances. It's a reasonable question for people to ask, but that's a disclaimer the government puts on there. There's, there's no realistic possibility of it happening. The whole union would turn to support people. And like I say, there are other protections in law around it. Brilliant. I, I think that reassure people because it does. It did shock some individuals. And I, I, I knew that was coming because... It does feel, and this is my, one of my questions to you, it does feel that the government's trying its best. And we know you, you, you've you lived through the 70s and 80s. I lived through the 70s and 80s myself. I know where, where unions became a dirty word. And one of the things, obviously, that we've had to do in the last couple of years is to actually highlight the positive work that unions have done when it comes to health, wealth and safety. And we saw how hard you fought during COVID for even threatening Section 44, didn't you? And, and I think that your union um, amount of people in the unions actually increased. I noticed there was definitely a kind of reunionization, almost like a, a fight back. And there's a definite feeling that there is a fight back that unions now for a different generation might actually be a different union than they were of the past. The problem is this, and you and I both know this, is that it's going to be very easy for the right-wing press to go, and you know the attack lines are going to be. We don't care about the children. We're selfish. We get 13 weeks holidays. We're all very well paid. They'll point out that £30,000, of course, is a great starting salary, and shut up. What are you whinging about? So how do you combat that narrative of the left-wing Trotskyist kind of dis disjointed individuals who, you know, woke karate. How do we fight that as a profession and still hold our heads up high and say, we are doing this because 
we believe in our profession and we are standing up for our profession? How do we fight that narrative? Well, let's first of all believe the truth in what you just said. That is why we'd be taking action. Uh, we'd be taking action because we see our profession being attacked. We see that huge problem with recruiting enough young people into the profession, the government missing its recruitment targets year on year, and the gap getting worse, actually, so that teacher recruit recruitment this year is worse even than in 2019. And we see retention problems growing. And um, we see that now at every stage of the career. It used to be there was quite a drop off at the start of the career, people not liking the job. And we've got a huge one of those, one in eight young people who have done a degree. Most of them got a postgraduate, then they've committed to training and one in eight of them leave in their first year and the numbers go up over the years following that. But we're now seeing people leaving at every stage of the career. We can see data from the pensions agency that um, people are, because we, we see when people start their pension, we can get that data. Uh, and we see that people are leaving before 60. They're getting out. And so they're leaving at every stage of the career. So we really are trying to do something about that. And that is both for our profession and for support staff. But it's also, crucially, it is about protecting education for our young people. So that's the truth of what we're doing. And the question of where the public support will be I think is interesting because people often think that strikes will be unpopular and uh, there are times when they are. But if you look at what's and then you have to ask yourself why this has changed right now, the RMT, Mick Lynch is a god on social media and people are generally supportive. You know, you, know, you know where Mick Lynch is, uh, you know where he gets it from, Kevin? I don't. Where does he get it from? He gets it from his Irish mother. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The gift of the gab, no, he's, br he's brilliant at it, but they're really well supported is my point. And, and I think that's because people understand that we're all in the same boat. You know, in our, I think our country is entering a moment of profound social crisis. We're in it and it's getting worse. There will be lots of people this winter who will be afraid to put the heating on. Uh, with, we're lucky with how mild, uh, I mean, it's terrible in terms of the fear about climate change, but we're lucky about how mild the weather is at the moment. But if it turns colder, there'll be loads of people who feel they can't put the heating on. There'll be other people who uh, can't feed themselves. We are getting stories of teachers who are using food banks. And I, I, that would have been such an impossible thing to say a few years ago, but teachers using food banks. And it's more widespread. It's across uh, the whole of society. And uh, why I try to say this when I'm speaking about it, that uh, the government says this crisis has been uh, uh, caused by the war in Ukraine, by the way the world economy has opened up after covid and there's obviously a lot of truth in that made a lot worse by their mini budget but actually i think those events are more like a trigger of the social crisis the real reason for the social crisis is that people haven't got any money because pay has been held down year after year since 2010 and we can see that for teachers and support staff we think support staff fallen 27 percent in real terms since 2010 teachers fallen 20 percent in real terms since 2010 before this year with this year that makes teachers 24 percent down on 2010 and that that's happened to everybody and people are starting to say this can't carry on 
Uh, and so I think there'll be a lot of public support. We have some other things that we will do to reach out for public support. So we are uh, with the Daily Mirror. I know, but that's the thing. That's the thing that worries a lot of staff is that, you know, you know, teachers are an altruistic bunch. We definitely put the needs of others. And of course, the government, and the government has so taken advantage of that good nature. They've done that, of course, with any of the social services, because we are that we're not, we don't go into the job because of money. We go into the job because we want to make a difference. And ironically, they always show those lovely, wonderful adverts about go make a difference, be a teacher. And we buy into that. That's why we do this. But the thing is, unfortunately for us, we live in a real politic world where resources are finite. And it, we have to be, I suppose my question is, is I've seen, I've seen you, you, you said that before about the trigger in Ukraine, and I know how they will spin the economic argument. I'm sorry, there's a finite pot of money, you can't have it, and you, you, you're already earning more than enough. You're, you're middle class teachers, you get good holidays, you earn enough money, I'm sorry that you've had this bad time, but compared to other people, we have bigger problems than you. Why should you get it? And I suppose that's the key thing that we have to get across to people that is, hold on a second here, Yes, educators are people who have suffered, but that is not, it's going to be difficult for us to argue. And I've had this conversation with some individuals who are like, actually, they would put the school budgets more importantly than themselves because they feel, and, and funny enough, on your Twitter, you, you'd had that up the other day, there was like 10,000 people voted, and they were saying a lot of teachers feel that the school budget is more important than their own. And I think to themselves, this is so typical of teachers that they, they simply would put their school and their kids before themselves and even when we're asking for a meager not even a pay rise kevin it's it, it mine's down 26 percent. i've done my own calculations since 2010 i'm 26 percent down but even i'm saying to myself okay i'm just about doing okay but i would sooner give the food to somebody else because it's my nature how do we convince people who are altruistic that it is worth fighting for and that they aren't taking the money from the needy children you know what i'm saying with that is that yeah. we need to convince teachers themselves how are you going to go yeah, about this this is the whole point of our demand not being just a pay rise but a fully funded pay rise and okay. that is there for that very specific reason i mean the, the, the pay rise that we are being awarded at the moment the five percent will come in will be backdated to september for support staff slightly higher than that for some of them but back, that'll be backdated to April, but schools aren't funded for them. They don't, they're nothing like matching inflation. You know, RPI's inflation is 12%, CPI inflation 10%. So a 5% pay rise is another minimum 5% cut, maybe a 7% cut in your standard of living. Um, so they're nothing like enough, but even then they aren't fully funded and schools will be making redundancies and cuts in hours as a result of that. Now, the question of where the resources comes from does matter. And it is a question directly for government, but you also have to make the argument that investment in education is investment in the country and that the government really has to find a way of putting money in. Now, there are differences in the way different population, different segments of the population have been treated since 2010, because for ordinary working people, and I'm putting teachers in that category, ordinary working people, they've seen their pay decline year on year. For us, there have been 13 annual pay rises since then, 10 of them less than inflation, three of them only marginally above inflation, and this year's the worst of the lot. And that's the same pattern for, for nurses and midwives and support school support staff. 
but that isn't the case for uh, profits from companies, for uh, the bonuses of bankers, etc. So there has been some money, and the question is, th th there is a question of redistribution. The, uh, the amount of money that's going, going in profits in our society has increased as a proportion compared to the amount of money going in wages. And that's throwing the economy out of balance so that we will now enter a recession simply because people haven't got any money in their pockets to spend in the shops. So there is a bigger argument about redistribution, but where we're going to focus our attention is on talking with parents about the impact on their child's education. So we're about to relaunch our School Cuts website. And I don't know if you, you know, in 2017, in the snap general election, we had the School Cuts website running. That, we, yeah. we, we pointed to uh, the cuts that had happened since 2015. We pointed to the difference in the party manifestos. And we know that MPs are frightened of that School Cuts website, uh, I thought, I thought conservative MPs about. in particular. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. I thought it was quite clever. I noticed the other day that the little nudge that you did when you you put out the little table, and in that little table was the uh, the leaders, the potential leaders, yeah, and the yeah. leaders, and it was this is your school, this is the budget yeah. cut from your primary and secondary school, and then when you bring it all the way down, you know schools have been running very much empty, and it was like ninety percent. I think it was again was ninety percent of schools will be running a deficit by April. You were wrecking. And so so in in the next couple of weeks we'll be able to launch the website with updated figures looking forward to next april so that every parent or carer can look at their child's school their children's schools and see the effect and what we'll have is a figure that compares that school's spending power with uh, 2015 but yeah. also that compares their school's spending power with last year because what we what's happening now is the result of our school cuts campaign in 2017 it changed three quarters of a million votes in that general election according to opinion pollsters and that meant that boris johnson decided to remove school funding as an issue by the 2019 election so they were promising that 7 billion 14 billion different ways of counting it and they were promising more money to come into schools and since 2019 school budgets have been edging up not getting back to the 2015 levels, mm -hmm. but still edging up. But next next April, they aren't edging up. They are going down again. They haven't reached the 2015 levels and they're going to fall even further away. And we'll be able to point every parent in the country. And this time we'll be launching that website. We're, do, we're doing that alongside ASCL and NAHT and other unions that want to be part of of launching it and pointing to every parent the impact that will have on their child's school and i think school funding is going to become a political cause celebre and the government was going to have to find ways of investing i mean rishi sunak is talking about you know uh, people want growth I, i'd say we want good sustainable green growth but you can understand that the argument for growth he, but he, even he's been pointing to a need to put um, money into education, into skills is the way he's thinking about it. Yeah. But education as a whole needs an investment if the country is going to have the skilled workers that it needs to have. I, you know, and that's not 
that's nothing like for me the only purpose of education but there is a point in investing in education and it's going to become a cause celebre and it's going to be a cause celebre before the next general election and along with the the possibility of industrial action the, the sort of political campaign that you can mount around school cuts using that school cuts website i think that will create enormous pressure and i do think that we've got a reputation for telling the truth. Uh, they tried to attack the School Cuts website. James Cleverly, actually, uh, one of the, the erstwhile recent Secretaries of State for Education, tried to get the UK Statistics Authority to get us to take the website down. And that didn't happen because our figures were true. They were telling the truth. And I think we've got a reputation from COVID for, for telling the truth as well about where... No, I, 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 think, know, and, um, and I think we can use that in this, in this political situation. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing during, during COVID. It was... Uh, I, I, again, I, I, I thanked you before, but I'm thanking you again in a different different way. But I, I, I think you played a very good game during COVID. And it was very quite refreshing because I felt that I was on the media, any media I could get a hold of saying, this is the situation in schools. We need ventilation. We need health and safety. And, and it was good to see that the unions were willing to use the Section 44 as a kind of, look, we have the right to stand our ground. But it was interesting, again, seeing how the attack dogs were trying to guilt us in. You don't care about the children. It was really horrible to see that where I saw some of my colleagues who have gone above and beyond, put their health at risk, put their own, you know, put themselves front and centre almost in a warlike situation only to be rounded on. And I think that broke a few people that how expendable that we were as the teachers. And equally, one of the things that's broken some of my colleagues is that, you know, we keep talking about, oh, the children are important, the children are important, but actually nobody seems to have looked after the staff and in particular the support staff. And one of my questions to you is, is multi-academy trusts, we could have a paritic victory on this, Kevin, because we could win the, the 12% or 13% or 10% that you're looking for. But, and you know that the, 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 here, here comes the kicker, multi-academy trusts are under no obligations to pass on those actual pay rises because, as James Cleverly turned out and said in July when the school's, uh, what do you call it, review board, trusts can set their own pay policy. So you can have a situation where people like myself could fight tooth and nail to get pay rises and actually not see the pay rises. So how do you ensure that the, if you get what we're looking for, that that's passed down? And equally, how do we get back to the structural change? Because that's the thing that te- teachers, it's not just about the funding. It's you could throw money at education, Kevin. But as you well know, some of that's been top sliced off into areas that it shouldn't be. There's money in education, but it's not exactly where it needs to be. It's a bit of a top down model and it needs to be a bottom up model. So how do we, how does the union go about not just winning the, the funding, but making sure the funding goes to the teachers and then also making sure that funding goes to those disadvantaged areas? Because they disproportionately, we saw during COVID, they disproportionately suffer. And nothing that this government has done in the last 12 years has closed the gap. If anything, all they've done is open up the gap even more. So how do you how do you go about getting those multi-academy trusts to make sure that they, and some of them don't recognise unions, Kevin. Some of them are quite hostile to unions. And, and that's that's a difficult thing that some of my colleagues in these multi-academy trusts have had. Now, don't get me wrong, some of multi-academy trusts are different from others. There are good multi-academy trusts, and like everything else in life, there are not so good multi-academy trusts. So how would you resolve that? Yeah, I mean, we do have very good bargaining relationships with a whole number of multi-academy trusts, which really depend on us having school reps in lots of the schools in those multi-academy trusts. And but uh, so there are good bargaining relationships in those places. There are teachers in almost every multi-academy trust who have a legal entitlement to whatever is in the school teachers paying conditions document because of two P protections. But in the end. 
it would be uh, a union response that would ensure that that trusts did pay and that's what we do is i mean actually we don't think that will be a problem right if when we win this we will win it because government has decided that it cannot hold uh, public sector pay down in the way that it's doing at the moment uh, i met with the the governor of the bank of england uh, along with other tuc union leaders last monday we were pressing the case with him about the need for this pay rise and th- what we'll have to do is the government will have to change its mind when it does that means funding schools to pay it now i i don't see multi- we, we want a fully funded pay rise and i don't see the interests of an individual multi-academy trust in trying to suppress pay in that situation and if they did we would expose them by all means that we could and if we needed to we would take industrial action uh, at, at those multi-academy trusts and we find that when when we approach that in the right way multi-academy trusts generally do the right thing now that's not to say we absolutely don't think the system of multi-academy trusts is the right way to organize education in this country and we're seeking uh, a government that will change its mind on that and uh, it looks like the government has dropped the schools bill that was saying that all schools have to be uh, in a multi-academy trust by 2030 it looks like they're dropping that as part of this that's a step in the right direction in our view but we want to politically we want to move away from the model of multi-academy trust but we live in the world that we're in at the moment so we build good bargaining relationships we build reps we have the possibility of industrial action at multi-academy trust level if we need to so that, like, that's a really good answer because I'm I'd put my mind at ease as well because that's often a question I get asked by colleagues of like well, again for support staff because there is no national kind of um, paying conditions for support staff and I'll be honest with you I think they they tend to always get overlooked and, and it's much like everything else you don't miss them till they're not there and then you realize what they have been doing and the, and the work that they've been doing and, and, and literally there was a, for me a double squeeze in that we have a higher need for support staff because the complicated nature of our children post-COVID. And then we also have less of them, which puts more strain on the currents. And then you realise all the little things that you cannot quantify. And that's unfortunate as government sometimes wants things like data. And you, you know, the support staff member could be worth their weight in gold because they do that. those little things that are immeasurable, those priceless things that are so immeasurable that they cannot be. And when you look at the pay of some of those people, for instance, those support staff, they are some of the best value people you can get because they aren't in it for the pay, but even they are being poked away to work in Tesco and Asdo. And, and I have that conversation with a couple of individuals saying, I'm working two and three jobs because their support staff pay in school is so low. So I think that's something that we, we certainly need. And I've noticed a lot more um, unionization of support staff because they are the people I think in the most need when it comes to the cost of living crisis because their wage is so low, they're the ones being squeezed out of school. So how would you support, ironically, support the support staff? Well, I think you, you've just made the points, really. Uh, the job, I mean, so, sometimes people uh, think that the job of a classroom assistant is, if, if, if they have no recent experience, they might think the job is washing out paint brushes, washing out paint pots, and it is so much more of a sophisticated educational job than that for many support staff. And yet the pay levels, as you've just described, are actually worse than people working in Aldi and Little. And people working in Aldi and Little, Tesco and Asda, they're doing an important job for our society. They are key workers, as we found out during the pandemic. But 
for teach for schools are finding it difficult to hold on to their support staff because people can can see that they can get more pay in a supermarket and that has to change and not only does that have to change but the funding of those positions has to, you know when pay rises come they have to be fully funded otherwise we just end up losing more of the support staff and i i think there is a really big discussion to have about which matters most and and school funding i think is where people put their priority actually then workload is a really big part of the priority for every teacher that you ever come across but quite i'm absolutely uh, justified reasons but there are links between all these things when our, when the turnover of teachers and the inability to recruit is so profound then that just means that if you're a head of department in a secondary school and you keep getting new teachers who come and leave then all the work of mentoring those people is adding to your workload if you have if you don't have support staff or if there is a constant churn of support staff that's adding to your workload and that's creating more problems with holding people at those later places in the profession so these things are all linked together I, I i don't have the time now but i really would like to come back at some point if the, if, if you were up for this oh, to have a discussion yeah. about about the about about the, the what are, what are the real underpinnings of the workload crisis facing teachers in our schools and how do we how do we set about putting those right uh, because oh. there's there's a lot to say about that yeah. i think I think you've just reinvited yourself on for a couple of weeks time, Kevin, and I'd be more than happy to have you, my friend, because yeah, there is so much to unpick, isn't there? There is, and, and equally, I would like to talk a bit more about, about the likes of the teachers, but not, the, not just the pay, but the conditions, the workload, um, potential general election, change of government. There's so much that's happened, Dan, there's so much that we could discuss. But my last big question before I open up to the, to the rest of the audience, and I know you, your, your time is quite finite, is, we see that the school advisory board has said 5% and that's what they, their statistics said. Now they published that in July and James cleverly as he was then was the education minister. He said, that's, that's fine. That's what the advisory board has said. And they will hide behind the advisory board and say, that's what we've been told. I'm sorry, you can't have any more, but that's what we've been advised by the school advisory board. How do you fight that when they've said they've had an independent advisory board suggest this is the figure? And the £30,000 is the top end thing that they'll go with. You know, new teachers get £30,000. So how do you combat the fact that they say they have an independent review body and that is the percentage that the independent review body has said? So what's your comeback to them when they're going to say that to you? So we're talking about the school teacher review board. Yeah. yeah. And that makes the recommendations to government. Correct. And they say it's independent. But, you know, in other places in industry, if there was a body like that that was going to make recommendations, then the government would appoint some people to the board. Uh, the school employers might appoint some people to the board and the unions might appoint some people to the board. Uh, and then they would debate it and a recommendation would come out. That's not the case here. The government appoints every one of those people to the board. Um, and then they are they are not given an unconstrained choice about what they recommend for teachers. The government writes them a remit letter and in the remit letter the government says you can't award more than and then they, they they're given a, a what they call an affordability figure so they're told on one hand report what you think you need in order to have enough teachers and on the other hand 
they're told that you can't be more than this. And that's the position that we're in with these uh, with this so-called independent review body. And I think it's failed its job for many years. It doesn't speak truth to power. It doesn't say it could say to government, OK, you've said that three percent's the top. So we're, we're going to say three percent. But we want to tell you this isn't enough. You have to do more in the future. This isn't. And they're not robust in that way of challenging government about these things. So it's not that there is an objective scientific process for deciding what the right pay level is for teachers that this review body comes out with. Instead, it's a hand-picked group of people decided by the government under a remit from the government, which then effectively says, this is the least we think you can give. And even that is not is clearly not enough. So we want to see a model more like the model in Scotland. So uh, NEU doesn't organise in Scotland. We don't have members in Scotland because our sister union, the EIS, the Education Institute of Scotland, uh, we recommend people working in Scotland join the EIS. And um, But th their pay system there is very different to ours. Uh, uh, education has, has always been a devolved matter in Scotland. Ever since the Act of Union, education's always been run in Scotland. So it's quite different. There's no academies, etc. But the, the, the pay determination system there is the unions sit down in a room with the employers, COSLA, the, the Confederation of Scottish Local Authorities, and with the Scottish government. And then there is a three-way discussion where the unions are saying, this is what teachers deserve. Schools, are, uh, the, the local authorities are saying, this is how much we think we need to pay in order to have enough teachers. And government is there to say, this is how much we've got. You know, And then there is a three-way discussion. And that system that leads to bargaining, which then applies to every teacher working in every Scottish school and every supply teacher working in Scotland, they're all covered by the, the provisions of that, uh, that negotiation. That has led to much better pay rises overall in Scotland than it has in England. So we want to go back to a system like that because the review body is not independent enough. It doesn't have the freedom to say what it wants. It's constrained by the government. It's appointed by the government. So um, I know you're, 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 are you willing to stay on for a tip, a couple of calls or are you, you have to go? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I've, I'm, I've got an appointment, <laughs> so I'm going to have to go. No, no problem. You've, I've already got it squeezed in an extra eight minutes out of you. But yeah. you know, I'm happy to come back and, and do this again and talk about possibly workload, talk about the work of the union as well. I'd be more than happy to have you back on, Kevin, anytime. Um, maybe sometime during this, this long ballot period to talk about how it's going and to get some questions from people about the questions they're asking uh, about it. And we can look at how NEU and NASUWT members and NAHT members can work together in their schools. I think a really big help to us is in a primary school where you're a primary teacher, you know the head personally, you've got a friendly relationship with the head generally. I mean, not, no, it doesn't happen everywhere, but generally good relationships. And you can start to think, oh, are we taking strike action against our head, even though we're clear it's against the government? But the fact that NAHT are balloting at the same time as us means that everyone can see it's us and the heads together to try and get the government to change course. And I think that's going to be a really big help to us. Maybe we can come back and talk some more about that.
Absolutely. I think, I think, Kevin, I think if you and I were in a pub, we'd probably take a couple of hours judging from our personalities. But yeah, <laughs> but that's that's the beautiful thing about it because that's that we both love our education. We're both doing what we do because we care about the profession, and and I and it is the profession that I worry about. And I know I'm trying to see both sides. I know that's why some people worry about going on strike, being a potential damage to the reputation of the profession. But also, it's a big big ask for some people because they've never done it before, and it is a very scary thing. So anything we can do to sort of discuss around that might help people make, I think, a better informed decision, because that's what it is about, isn't it? It's about people taking ownership and empowering them and saying, look, because I I mean, it's in my blood, you can guess from my accent, my parents were civil rights marchers. So I, I was born to stand up and speak truth to power, as you said, because that's the nature of who I am. It's one of the reasons I became yeah. a teacher. But not everybody's like that. Nobody over the years have realized that, you know, some people are just, they do do things differently and they do them a bit more cautiously. So I'd be more than happy to have you, have you on again and we can continue exploring some of these things, especially think, I think you're absolutely right about workload and, and about data and about ex exams, Kevin. Exams, yeah. the examination system's a big one, isn't it, really, where we look at what are we trying to produce? And, and you touched upon the apprenticeships. I think that's another one as well about what are we, what's the purpose of education? What are we here to do? You know, trying to produce a well-rounded individual child who can function in society, not just somebody who can pass exams. So that's something else we can explore. But thank you, Kevin. And, and thank you for your time as well. I know I've got uh, squeezed a bit more out of you, but that was always going to be the case, wasn't it? <laughs> Great to be with you. No, it's, yeah. it's been one of the pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. I'll speak to you okay. again. Thank Speaking you. Bye-bye. Okay, there, listeners. Um, that was Kevin Courtney, the Joint General Secretary of the NEU. And what we have is we had a really good discussion and debate about the, the idea of um, strikes, industrial action, and, and, and obviously the case for, and, and I played devil's advocate there, looking at some of the, the arguments against that and, and, and who would be opposed to that. Um, I'd be more than happy to take any of your calls or take any of your questions. I have Spence in the room. I've got Leanne. I've got Bismarck Sevens. Obviously, somebody come calling from Germany, possibly. Uh, we've got God of God has entered the studio. Um, not get too theological about that. We've got Andrew in here. We've got uh, Gelato. We've got uh, Roger's History, the man himself. Uh, we have Phantom Salad Dodger. What a great name that is. Um, just had salad for my lunch. So you're more than welcome. And again, I've seen some messages there that, and that's a very good point, the Phantom Salad Dodger has said, to be honest, schools cannot function without support staff. Absolutely spot on. Because again, it's it's. I love what Kevin said there when he said about, you know, that all people's jobs are valuable. Absolutely. You know, and I do, I treat everybody equally. I think my caretaker are, you know, whatever the designated name for a caretaker is these days, I think they've got on-site manager. They're just as important sometimes as, as, as the head teacher and because they can be the person who, who does just go above and beyond and keeps the lights going. So absolutely, our support staff are integral to the nature of our school and that's why I felt it important to ask Kevin uh, about support staff because I think that they are a crisis definitely there because we, we have missed them. When they haven't been there and now we realize many of us the job that they were doing and, and the job they were doing was 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 i say greasing the wheels and keeping the school running and sometimes taking the hits for for the teacher because they're they're the one dealing with the child with the extreme needs and and where you are let's be honest let's be frankly honest about it we are dealing with more complicated needs of more children and i often think to myself are children becoming more complicated or are we becoming more aware but that awareness comes with a bit, a bit of a guilt thing because it's in our nature to try and help people. And it's nothing more frustrating when you're trying to help somebody, but you just 
don't have the resources to help them. And that is that leads to a lot of frustration from some people. So um, if anybody wants to call in and have a conversation about that, I'm more than happy to take any of the uh, any of the calls uh, about what Kevin has just said or any of the points that Kevin has just made. Uh, Kevin made a point about um, the unions coming together. I thought that was interesting. That's definitely new. Um, not that the unions ever fight among themselves. They're not like siblings or anything, but they, they have their own identities, the unions. So, you know, they, um, the NSUWTs is, is slightly different to the, the NEU. And one of the questions I was going to ask Kevin is that on the NASUWT ballot, they actually ask, uh, take strike action, yes, but they also give a second option, which is um, to go as far as strike action. So they're getting a bit of a choice that's slightly different to the NEU, because the NEU is quite simply strike action or no strike action. So I was going to hopefully maybe speak to Pat Roach, maybe I can get Pat Roach on in, in a couple of weeks. That may be a really good guest to, to see is, is Pat coming out with something similar. And I don't think he would not be. Uh, and again, Jeff Barton, I think, would be coming out with very similar um, take on things. And it's interesting to see the unions actually coalesce. And many have called for that. They've actually called for for people to be, uh, I suppose, a question I meant to ask. Oh, question I was going to ask. But afterwards, it's always wonderful when you say hindsight's a beautiful thing. Does he feel as if Kevin was, you know, I didn't get to answer it, but a general strike, is that the direction we're traveling where you're going to have all the teaching unions out on one day? Would that be the plan that NAS, ASCO, um, NAHAT, uh, and NEU all would coordinate? Or would they have separate days because the disruption of that, what would have more impact? What would be fair to parents would be one day when all the unions go out and that that means you, you yeah it would be at the schools would be closed but if all the independent unions were going to have different strike days ooh, that could escalate the situation so it'd be interesting to see what they do with this if they all vote to go out do they sit down together and then discuss and i suppose that's a question i can put to kevin if kevin comes back in, in the next couple of weeks but I, I would love to have kevin back in and do i literally answer that question of what happens next, you know, and, and I know that one of the things would be, it wouldn't be one strike day. The vote to strike is valid for six months. That means that there is six months when, you know, they, they can go legally go on strike. So that strike action is valid for the six months would pretty much take you to the end of the year. January is when the vote would happen. You're talking to the end of June. So that would potentially be, you know, three terms worth um three new terms worth of, of, of strike action uh, and of course we've seen that with the rmt you know and the postal strike that it hasn't ended has it um with with the first i suppose um the first strike action and that's continued and continued and continued and maybe i suppose again what i would like to ask kevin when i have him back is is that does he believe that the government's spoiling for a fight and that, that he he was oh, he was confident wasn't he kevin was definitely confident that he could win and it was interesting his language was we can win this you know, Kevin was very clear, you know, we can win this and when we will win this. So I suppose you'd want your head of your union to believe that they can win this. But, you know, does he believe generally? Do the teaching staff believe that they can win this? How is the mor mor morale and the confidence of teachers? You know, this is one of the reasons why some people might say it's not worth it. And I suppose you get this inertia from people. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people that thinks you can change the world. It's one of the reasons why I became a teacher and people tell me I can't do things. It's always the spur for me to do the opposite, you know. I was always that child when I was told not to do something, decided that it was worth doing, you know, which gives me an interesting insight into the teenage mind. Probably one of the reasons I work with teenagers because I can't identify with them sometimes when they're told not to do something. I feel the urge to go, oh, shall I have a little experiment and give it a try, you know. And 
that's the thing is is this going to escalate you know are we going to find ourselves at loggerheads with the government but then teaching unions would be part of a wider as i think kevin was alluding to that a, a wider organization of unions and they're not just your traditional blue collar unions you're talking your lawyers your physiotherapists you're, you're talking about people like nurses and doctors you know professionals and that's not to say that unprofessional you know blue collar unions aren't as valuable absolutely because as kevin pointed out during the the covid crisis we realized actually who keeps the country running is sometimes the, the most unsung people our posties our delivery drivers you know the people that worked in our and on our supermarkets that kept the shelves going What's interesting to see how they were treated much like we were treated after the event of like thanks very much for doing your job and I've likened that to when I'm teaching the social history of both world wars. I always often show that, you know, women got the vote and I know that uh, some historians would agree, disagree with me and some would agree with me that the, one of the reasons women won the vote was because of the loyalty they showed during the war and stepping up and working in the factories, proving their point. Same as the NHS as a reward for the sacrifice of World War II. So what was the reward for us teachers in stepping up during COVID? What was our reward? And it's not to say that we are reward driven because we're not extrinsically motivated people. We are more intrinsic. But what was the reward? What was the thank you? Well, there's a 5% pay rise, which is a 7% pay cut. And thanks very much for all your hard work. What are you whinging about? And I suppose, um, and again, one of the things that stuck out with me the last couple of weeks was when, um, when I went to some of my colleagues about potential for going on strike and the electronic ballot was released by the NEU. The interesting thing was that NEU ballot crashed, the indicative um, online one, it crashed within the first 20 minutes because so many staff members, teachers and support staff had jammed it full uh, initially because the day before is when Trust Economics was released, trickled down, and there was the tax cuts for the wealthy. And I've never seen people who have been most mild-mannered, you know, Clark Kent type teachers who never say boo to a goose, would never rock the boat, you know, they would never, you know, keep themselves to themselves, come and do their job, ultimate professionals, but they were incensed by this. There was something about that situation where they felt motivated them to go and actually suggest that they were going to vote on a strike. And I saw something change in some people then because they felt it was just the unsense of, of unfairness that, you know, here we have a situation where so um, I'm still waiting for anybody that wants to, wants to join in. Uh, big shout out to uh, WPSC. Oh, I can't even say all that. Um, can people put their names on 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 logins? That's that's one of my sort of things. Just, yes, uh, Phantom Solid Dodger still here. Uh, thankfully, my mother's no longer listening. If she is, please don't ring in, Mum. I don't need a conversation. Um, but. Well, welcome to ring in, guys, and have, have a quick chat. If any of you have got, you can post up in the messages there. I'm getting your messages. If there's any points that you want to explore, or equally, if there's anything else you would like to add, or anything you'd want clarified, or equally, anything I've said that you might have a disagreement with, um, I am more than happy to have an, a discussion, engagement, debate. Um, I am a Socratic individual. I like a good discussion. I like a good natter, along with a good cup of tea, usually. Uh, usually, one goes with the other, and a biscuit. The biscuit of choice has to be chocolate hobnobs. Chocolate hobnobs. They are the biscuit of choice at the moment. Uh, I would say Jaffa cakes, but I'm not going to start the discussion about whether Jaffa cakes are a biscuit or a cake. 
for intensive purposes, apparently they're a cake. So more than happy, I have my um, Jaffa cakes, I have my cup of tea, I have my hobnobs, and I'm ready to discuss any of this with any of you guys if you want. If not, um, you can sit and listen to me for the next six or seven minutes, and I will lay out, I think, what I think was going to happen. So I think what's going to happen is I think there'll be a vote to go on strike. I think Kevin is right. I think that the feeling is within the profession that enough is enough. Um, I think it's not going to be as spectacular as maybe Kevin would like because it's difficult to get people back on a postal ballot. It's easier to get people on a, a physical ballot, i.e., um, you know, answering an electronic. But I think, of course, because the government have made it difficult um, for the physical ballot, I think they'll get their numbers. Um, the question will be whether those numbers are enough to justify a strike action. For some, they mightn't be enough, but they need as Kevin was saying, 50% response and they need 40% of the overall union. But I think his point is valid that when you have all of the unions working together, using all of their media, using all of their reps in every school, because if it was one union, some schools have a union rep, but maybe not another union rep, because you rely upon um, people to step up and be a rep, which in itself is a difficult job, it's a thankless job, because you have to be the person who has to speak truth to power. And if you have a union rep in school, they are usually the type of person who's not career orientated because it's not always good for your career when you're the person who's, who's standing up to authority. But at the same time, I, I know that I have had colleagues of mine who have progressed in being teachers reps, uh, sorry, union reps, because they have been able to find the balance between the two. And the person who I took over as union rep actually is a senior manager now, and, and, and we still have the same relationship. He's, he's absolutely fantastic. So it is, it is a tricky job to be a union rep. But at the same time, some schools just don't have union reps. Uh, you know, some of the smaller schools are. It's just not a school where there is a union presence possibly needed. Other schools, it all depends on personality. It all depends on context. So when you combine the two large unions, NASUWT and the NEU, that doubles your coverage. And that means that you would have potentially some schools would have one union rep, but maybe not the other. But if you both of your unions are balloting, then I think the coverage would be practically universal then. And as a result of that, I think they, there would be an increased turnout as a result. I think what Kevin was suggesting was the more of the unions, and, and again, you unite in your TUC, they also have members who are support staff. So I think when you add all of those memberships together, I, I think you've got the largest amount of, I think, asking the question ever. Uh, and this is, I think, unprecedented because it's always usually been one union going out. And that would usually be the NEU because the NES you do with the T is very rarely the type of union that strikes. And equally, the, the head teachers union is very rarely a, a teacher that a union that would, would call for a strike. So I think Kevin's point is completely valid that this is an unusual situation to see the, the unions in agreement and also coordinating. And there was a definite sort of hint there that there is coordination going on between all the teachers unions, which in itself actually is the theory of collectivization that there is strength in numbers, or I like to call it the wildebeest theory. Yes, it is Sunday and I'm talking nature programs, but yes, the wildebeest theory is safety in numbers. And, and, and if you think about that, the larger number of people that go on strike, then the more safe and secure that people feel that they can go on strike which then encourages more people to go on strike because you're not alone. And it's that kind of um, herd mentality, isn't it? The, the herd mentality theory of, you know, if you have your staff room and, and, and a lot of people are saying they're going on strike, people feel as if, oh, okay, I'll go with you. 
and that's a bit of a your kind of peer pressure, isn't it? And and I think that's uh, where if they are to be successful, the unions in convincing teachers that they do have to go on strike and want to go on strike. I think the battle would have to be won by the unions in the individual staff rooms. And that battle in the individual staff rooms is about convincing people. And that's hopefully what I tried to tease out from Kevin about his key arguments that he would have to make to the teaching staff about, you know, you're worthy of this pay rise, that, you know, you you need this pay rise. And in fact, you know, it is fully funded. I think that has to be the key question is that, you know, if I am to secure a pay rise myself, I will not cannibalize and take away funds that would be used for the children. And I think that is a point I wanted to make. So I have a question here. First time at Podbean, all unions must stand together. This is from MZBVGKBDN. Uh, all unions must stand together at the same time for any agreement taken seriously. We've not had that for a decade, and I felt it worthless when I went through it 10 years ago. Absolutely spot on. I think if you're going to do it, you have to do it together collectively, and that's collectivism. I completely agree with you on that, um, because it's more powerful, isn't it? It's more powerful if all of the unions are pulling the same direction. They all stand together. And therefore, they all have the same aims and objectives. But be interested to see what the government response to that will be. Will they try and divide and conquer? Because that's always the strategy. And that's a game that I was trying to tease out with, with um, Kevin of how they would, might try and spin the narratives of, well, you teachers had a 5% pay rise. Be grateful for the 5% pay rise. But even that, when I hear a 5% pay rise, my back molars, which have been ground down, what's left of them are being ground down because I don't. It's really dis disingenuous to turn around and say, you're having a 5% pay rise. It won't be. It is a pay cut. And I, it, even by itself, I find that very, very difficult that they sort of have to say it like that. And I find it very difficult that I have to sort of say to people, it's not 5%, it's actually going to be a 7% pay cut. And in real terms, in my own wage, that's 26% down since like 2010. Uh, every organisation, the Phantom Salad Dodger, every organisation threatening to strike action should all strike on the same day to show the government the old Wolfie Smith chant part. Oh, yeah, Wolfie Smith. Uh, he's actually local to me, believe it or not. He's from the, um, the, the he's actually from the actor. Um, oh, what's the actor's name? Oh, a Wolfie Smith actor. I'll come to me. He used to work in the Ironworks, which I'm teaching about, believe it or not. His Who Do You Think You Are is fantastic. Um, oh gosh, his name skips me. But Wolfie Smith, Power to the People, Power to the People. Um, that was one of my favorite shows growing up. Uh, the Tooting, wasn't it? The the Tooting <laughs> the Tooting Revolution, the Tooting People's Front. Uh, a Wolfie Smith, Power to the People. I think that's where it's healthy, heading. Phantom Salad Dodger. I think it's heading towards that possible general strike. You know, and that would be, would be reminiscent of the old seventies, which is what that shows from the seventies. So that fits. That's a full loop there, isn't it? That's a full smooth. That's Robert Lindsay. That's right. Citizen Smith, Robert Lindsay, the actor. He's done a lot of sitcoms, but uh, he's from the area where I currently teach in. And his, uh, his one of his first jobs was to work in the Stampton Ironworks in, in the, just outside the Ilkeston area of Derbyshire. And, and it's really good who you think you are, which I used to teach the kids about, um, which is fantastic. So, yeah, I, I think we're heading towards that. I think the, I, I said that in my opening set that we, we are potentially heading for a massive industrial action um, should the economy uh, tank as it's tanking and people start to feel the pinch and the bite. And I think we are heading towards, and not necessarily the type of people who normally would take industrial action is, is, is a key thing, 
But we all know how this government will respond. They will respond with their attack dogs, they'll respond with their media, and they will respond in kind by labelling us, you know, dis, you know, disloyal, and and you will have your right-wing sort of uh, uh, disc jockeys, you know, the type who will say you're whinging, yapping teachers. And we know the narrative, and it really grinds us, doesn't it? That narrative you get of you whingy teachers getting 13 weeks holidays. And, and funny, on Kevin's... Twitter feed. That's what I saw when, when he some some people who were trolling him were oh you know you get more than enough you 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 have thirteen weeks holidays you've got a crusty number you've got a big fat pension you know you teachers have big fat pensions and and we have to I suppose it's it's it's, it's emboldening us all of us within the profession to protect our profession by standing up for the profession and by making sure that people know the truth of what's going on in schools and 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 speaking truth to power as Kevin said there so um. Thank you for all your messages and, and thank you to Kevin and thank you to our sponsors Witherslack and thank you to uh, for listening to my first show. Uh, it's been a really good show. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, oh, last last message. I know that head teachers have to, told to choose if you help the energy bill to help the teachers pay increase. Yes, um, head teachers are in a bit of a pickle at the moment, but that's again why one of the reasons why I think it's really crucial that the head teachers union is talking about going on strike. And that's not something I've ever seen before. Because there has been again, there's a shortage of head teachers. Who would want the job? Oh my word! I, you know, I'm a person who has, I'm going to say it, issues with authority, which makes me quite a contradiction as a teacher. It's in my nature to question authority. That's just me. But I have to look at my head teachers, and I have to think that they have had such a rough job over the last couple of years. What a difficult balancing act they have to do, and I and I have to say. Fair play to them. I think it is a thankless, difficult job to manage people, to manage finances, and and there is a reason why there's a shortage of people stepping into headships because it is a difficult, difficult job made so much more difficult by the fact that you're not getting clear directions as well from the likes of the the education board. But maybe our new education minister will be a bit different. Maybe having the give back might make things differently. I don't know, but I know what we're heading for the next couple of months. I think a definite focus on education. I think Kevin is absolutely right, and I'll leave you with that 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 comment. I think education is going to have a massive focus because not just of the strike action, but because I think the realization is as this economy kicks in, I think people will start to hopefully realize the job that we do and the support network we are. But equally at the same time, that we're not an exhaustible resource. We are not an exhaustible resource. We cannot keep doing what we're doing. It's sustainability. Schools cannot be sustained at current levels with the cost of living crisis, with the staffing crisis, with the budget crisis, after what we've been through, austerity plus COVID. It is going to break and it is going to break people. But that is a show for a different time. I'd like to thank my guests. I'd like to thank you guys for listening. I'd like to thank all the messages. And I'd like to thank, obviously, Kevin for his time and for his fantastic interview. I've been Brent Poland. This has been a, a broadcast on Teachers Talk Radio. And I'd like to wish you all a wonderful Sunday. The sun seems to come out uh, all of a sudden. So maybe go and have a little walk after this. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. 